That's the most loving and gracious thing that he can do. To spare us torment and trial by pointing us to what will ultimately be for our best good. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. You're listening to Trust, a series preached through the book of Habakkuk. For more audio and theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. The great theologian, Johnny Cash, <laughs> once sang these words, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, Run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Now, what is Mr. Cash suggesting? He's suggesting that no matter how far you run, how much distance you put yourself between you and God, no matter how much you might ignore or suppress the truth of God, or through unbelief, through uh, sinful behavior, just through maybe new theology, no matter how much you do to try to escape God's wrath, you will one day, all of us, all of humanity, will face the sure judgment of God. As Numbers 33 or 32, 23 promises, your sin will find you out. Galatians 6, 7 tells us that uh, we're not to be deceived, that God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. And Paul says in Romans 2, 12, that all who sin apart from the law will be uh, will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Now, many people say, yeah, but Jesus wasn't judgmental. I said, really? Because even Jesus said that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they've spoken. He said that in Matthew 12, 36. He said, anyone who doesn't believe it and stands condemned already, uh, even before the great white throne judgment ever begins, and that scene, Revelation 20, tells us that every person who ever existed will be judged according to what they had done. And one of the surest ways to guarantee the judgment of God upon your life, if you want to just exact it, guarantee it, is to live a life of pride. The scripture says in Proverbs 16 18 that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We learn in the scriptures in many places that God actually opposes the proud. He's in opposition to those who are prideful, and yet he gives grace to the humble. As we open up the second chapter of the minor prophet book of Habakkuk, we open to God's reply to the prophet's concerns. We left off last week in chapter 2, verse 1, where the prophet has questioned God's fairness. Is it fair that God would raise up the Chaldeans, what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire? Is it fair that he would raise up a wicked, violent people to judge wickedness and violence in his own people? It almost seems like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And starting in verse 2 of chapter 2, he now receives the vision of God. He receives God's answer, and he's prepared himself uh, for this. And realizes I'm probably going to be corrected. What we see in this chapter, chapter 2, what we just read, we see five woes decreed against Babylon. Five indictments, as it were, against uh, the group that would come against uh, the people of God. And so even though God is going to use Babylon for his purposes, even though God is going to use them as a nation, she will still be guilty and for her complicit um, desire to be 
uh, an instrument of judgment. In other words, uh, she is still guilty for wrongdoing, and she'll uh, incur God's swift judgment in due time. So what we're going to see today, if you're tracking with me, is that no one, no one will escape the wrath of God. And yet, what we're also going to see today is that there is a way to be justified with God, to be made right with God, rather than being judged by Him. And the only way to be justified is by faith alone. So to break these verses down, here's where we're going to go today. Uh, we do talk about the wrath of God. We talk about hell. We talk about judgment. We talk about sin because they're in the scripture. And if you want to go to a church that doesn't talk about that, I'm sorry. You're here today. We're going to be diving into the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And I can say that with a smile because I know something that's glorious good news. So here's where we're going today. Let me break these verses down. We're going to see, first of all, that the vision shall be given. In verses 2 and 3, we're going to see that the just shall live by faith in verse 4. And we're going to see the nations shall pronounce five woes in verses 5 through 20. All right? You guys are up for this? Up for the judgment of God, the wrath of God. You're like, I didn't wake up on time today. I wasn't expecting this. So here we go. Let's look at um, verse 2 and the first idea the vision shall be given. Verse 2, uh, we just read it. It says, the Lord answered me. So this is God's response to Habakkuk. He says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Why? So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It's not for right now. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. So it's honest and it's true. If it seems slow, wait for it. God's, God's answer often does seem slow to our timetable. But he says, it will surely come. It will not delay. So notice in verse 2 that the prophet says, the Lord answered me. This is now God speaking to him. God instructs him to do this, to write the vision down, write it down, and then make it plain on tablets. Now, a lot of people think these tablets could have been clay or some other form, but essentially what God was about to communicate to him was to be written down. You actually need to record this, scribe this, get it written down in something that will last some time. In other words, it's not just transmitted verbally. It needs to be actually kept and uh, displayed. Is to be clearly, plainly written and visible. Why? Verse 2 explains that the purpose of making it plain was that so someone could read it and run with the message. Okay? In other words, the message should empower the reader to make swift progress. And then in verse 3, uh, he points out that what the vision speaks of is not going to come to pass right away. It's going it's to actually come to fruition in a little bit of time. And it's going to come about some time later. But notice that God still calls it the, quote, appointed time. It's not out of time. It's right on time. As someone said recently, the world is not falling apart. It's falling into place. And I like that. The world's not falling apart, guys. It's falling into place. God uh, is keeping his watch. And everything is coming uh, through the appointed time. So as we learned last week, God is sovereignly at work in the rise and the fall of all the nations, and he will accomplish all that his counsel stands to decree. John Piper said this about the sovereignty of God. I love this quote. He said, the roll of the dice, the fall of a bird, the crawl of a worm, the movement of stars, the falling of snow, the blowing of wind, the loss of sight, the suffering of the saints, and the death of all, from the smallest to the greatest, these are included in the word of God in Isaiah 46.10. I will accomplish all purpose. Now, just as an aside, uh, these verses 2 and 3 are speaking about the decree of the Lord. That is true. But in a small way, 
uh, what these verses say about vision can also apply to a vision for a church, a vision for a business, a vision for a family, uh, or a vision for an event. So if you're a business owner, if you're a team leader, if you're a dad, or you're running a special event, and you want to kind of know what a vision is, these verses indirectly give us some added insight. So just real quick, it's kind of a bonus. Look at these four things. Notice that I would just say any vision that you have for your organization, for your family, needs to be written down. Uh, it needs to be plain. It needs to be understandable. It should be for the future, not for today. And it should empower people to run with it. Let me just give you an example. Our vision as a church this year in 2019 is three words. I, I, this is going to be scary. Does anyone know what our vision is? Three words. Run with endurance. Yes. Looks like someone got it wrong. So run with endurance. Um, we're praying as a church for a future dedicated space for our fellowship by Easter 2020. That's our vision right now for this year. So we're running our, our walk or our race with endurance, not just for a building, but that we can have more of Jesus this year. Uh, but that's pretty much spoken clearly. It's been written down. It's been preached on. Uh, that first or first few Sundays in J uh, January, we put it up on our website. We've given reminders. I've emphasized it. And we've empowered our church family to run with this vision. It's very plain. It's not overly complicated. It's not for 100 years from now. Hey, guys, our vision for uh, 2120. No, no, it's a vision for this next year. Uh, but this helps clarify what we should be doing for next steps now. As a dad, I have a vision for our family. I have a vision for my life. And I've written down specific areas of my responsibility, a vision for each one. For our family, uh, we have this vision. I'll put it on the screen just to share this openly. Uh, one of the, vi the vision for our family, our Benham family, is to glorify God in three areas. In our foundation, the foundation of our life, in our vocation, what we do for the Lord and for the community, and in our recreation, how we enjoy all things that have been given to us for the glory of God. And that's something written down. That's something I read every week. It's something that I've shared with our family, and it's something that's reminded often. So when a vision is written, it's plain, it paints a picture of the future, people can run with it. And guys, that's what Israel did. Israel, uh, when the Babylonians came to conquer them, they could hold on to these verses as encouragement in the midst of terror. Many of you have held on to scripture. You've written it down. You've memorized it. It's on your dashboard or it's on your notes or it's maybe your backdrop, your background on your iPad or iPhone. And these are verses that you go to. They're written down. They're playing. They're sources of strength. And so starting at verse 4, we get a description of Babylon in comparison to Israel. Look at verse 4, our second idea, the just shall live by faith. It says in verse 4, behold, pay attention, notice, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but, here's a distinction, the righteous shall live by his faith. The word for puffed up, if you want to circle that phrase, uh, it's a Hebrew word that's only used here in the Old Testament. And it actually needs to be swollen. You can kind of picture a bloated toad, right? That's, that's just kind of swollen, that's overcome. And those who are arrogant, God is saying they're, they're puffed up, their chest is puffed up, and they're kind of arrogant and brash. And, and he says, but within them, their soul is not upright. They're in their pride, they're puffed up with their evil passion. And yet inside of them, their soul is corrupted. But, he says, in distinction to him, the righteous will live by his faith. Another word is faithfulness. They're kind of connected. We're doing this series called Trust on this uh, book. 
the idea is that we're trusting in the Lord, we're walking by faith, when we walk by faith, now we're walking faithfully. And so the righteous, the just, will live by trusting God, and that will make him justified. Now that phrase, the righteous shall live by his faith, I want all of you right now, if you have a pen or a highlighter, go ahead, or maybe your Bible app, go ahead and highlight that or circle it, even if it's a handout Bible, just go ahead and underline that for the person next week, okay? This is an important phrase. In fact, this is the most important centerpiece phrase or verse in all of this book, Habakkuk. It's quoted three times in our New Testaments, and I'll give you the three. Uh, first, it's quoted in Romans 1.17. In that verse, Romans 1.17, Paul is emphasizing the just and how the just are justified. What does that mean to be justified before God? It's mentioned a second time in Galatians 3.11. And here Paul quotes it again, but this time he emphasizes the part where he says, shall live. He emphasizes shall live in Galatians 3.11. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes it in Hebrews 10.38, where the emphasis is not the just and not shall live, but the emphasis is living by faith. The just shall live by faith. This phrase, the just shall live by faith, was known as the watchword of the Protestant Reformation. One person said, these are the seven most important monosyllables in all of church history, and I completely agree. How is one made justified rather than standing exposed before the judgment of God? How are we made right with God? You may have heard the word justified, maybe in youth group or in a church, as just as if I'd never sinned. How many of you have heard that? Just as if I'd never sinned. And that's not completely accurate. That's like, it, get, it gets most of it, but it's not fully there. Uh, the word justified, the reason is it means more than just to be acquitted. It actually means to be pronounced, declared, spoken of righteous. To be given a forensic legal standing where you're no longer guilty, but now you're actually righteous. And it's to take all of the debt that you owe, to eliminate it, and then to put wealth into your account, uh, righteousness speaking. And so it would actually be better, uh, more accurate, instead of saying, just as if I'd never sinned, to say, just as if I had lived as perfect a life as Jesus did. Isn't that fascinating? It's just as if I lived the perfect life and had perfect standing before the Father. As someone as well said, justification goes beyond acquittal to approval and beyond pardon to promotion. See, acquittal means that I'm just free from a charge. I'm free to leave the courtroom and I don't have the chains anymore, but that's it. Whereas justification means that positive righteousness has been imputed to us. Now listen, church, I just have to say this. This is not elementary where we move on from this. We have to go deeper into the, the simplicity of the gospel that lest you overlook this as a, as a follower of Christ that's been following Jesus for years, this is something we still have to be reminded of on the daily, on the weekly, that justification is a reckoning that takes place in the mind of God, and it's not something that you and I feel. You follow me? I don't feel justified on certain days of the week. In fact, if I base my walk with Jesus on my feelings, there's often, there are often times where I don't feel the grace of God. I don't feel forgiven. I don't, in fact, I feel condemned, if anything. Nod your head in agreement if you're in that camp sometimes. You, you wake up, you don't feel justified. Like, I wake up this morning, 
and, I, and it's like the radio's already on, and there's Christian worship playing. I just wake up, and I'm, I'm justified. You look out the window, and there's a sparrow, and you're like, there's a verse for that. Right? And the sparrow's going to go by, and you walk out into the living room, and the kids are all doing their quiet time. You're just like, I'm justified. Right? You just wake up, and, and you're, you're loving your wife, and you're loving your neighbor who, who's, you know, left his trash can out by the road, and, and the dogs are using the bathroom in your lawn. You're like, I love you, bro. It's okay. And you're scooping up the, the waste, like, just like Jesus. You know, it's not like we feel justified. We don't have that moment. We are declared righteous, even when we don't perceive that we're righteous. I love what the Cambridge Declaration says. I can't say it any better than this. It says, there's no basis for our acceptance before God except in Christ's saving work. Not in our patriotism, churchly devotion, or moral decency. The gospel declares what God has done for us in Christ. It is not about what we can do to reach him. We reaffirm that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect justice. How are we justified? How are we made right with God and declared righteous by Him? How? See, most Americans believe in justification by one of six means. I'm just going to put them up almost all on the screen for you this morning. This is how many of us, Westerners, Easterners, but particularly Americans, believe we're justified. How am I made right with God? It's through these, through, first of all, law keeping or legalism. They would say, well, you know, I keep the law. And thus, I'm made right with God. Or through heritage, we call it nationalism or racism. These people would say, listen, I'm born into the right race or to the right country, thus I'm good with God. Others would believe in good behavior or moralism, where the idea is I just live rightly or as a good citizen, and then God will weigh my good deeds as substantial. Or many people today reject that and they go the spirituality route, the uh, asceticism or mysticism route. And this person would say, listen, I just reject organized religion altogether. And, and, and because of that, I'm in tune with my spirituality. And thus, I'm one with God. I'm in tune with the God, the, the Godness. Or many people believe in what I call comparison redemption. This is what I call I'm better than my neighborism. Uh, right? The idea is, you know, I'm not a mass murderer, so God obviously uh, is pleased with me. He has to be, because I'm not that bad. Or uh, a lot of people, you really get to the heart of it, they just believe in justification by death. I call it my grandmaism. In other words, yeah, my grandma died, so she's not alive, which means she's in heaven. She's justified by death. Listen, church, at the end of the day, on the screen, look at these, at the end of the day, a legalist is merely a sinner who sins in one way, keeping the law, but breaks another law, and they will face God's judgment. A nationalist is a sinner who believes that God will favor my race over another. They will face God's judgment. A moralist is merely a sinner who's better behaved than other sinners. They will face God's judgment. A spiritual but not religious person may do yoga, but yoga won't save you from the judgment of God. You can compare yourself with evil people around you, but God doesn't judge on a curve. He judges on his law. And ultimately, if you stumble in one area, you've transgressed the sum of it. One day, all of us in this room will die. And death will not justify us. It'll just bring us closer to the judgment of God. The reality is that none of these things save 
None of these things justify. Nothing that we did justifies us. As the hymn Rock of Ages declares, not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin it could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. The hymn goes on and says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You and I, we are justified by faith alone. We're saved by grace alone. We're redeemed from our sin by Christ alone. Catholics and Protestants disagree about this. Uh, we don't have time to discuss it today. I took it out of my notes because of time, but I'm going to post on it this week on a blog post about um, what, what it means to be justified, what does it mean to be declared righteous, uh, Catholics and Protestant beliefs. We'll look for it on our website or Facebook page this week. So Habakkuk affirms that the just shall live by faith. Now, this was a description of God's people. God's people, the justified ones, will by their faith be justified. That's how they'll walk with him. But the enemies of God, in distinction, will walk in puffed up pride. And then in verse 5, we get a list of five woes proclaimed against Babylon. You could say these are five indictments against King Nebuchadnezzar, who's not declared righteous, but declared shameful and guilty. So let's look at the third idea. The nations shall pronounce five woes. Look at verse 5. He says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then he says in verse 6, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him? And then say, and then we begin to see the woes. Okay, listen, this is an assurance for the prophet and for the readers of this vision. The Babylonians may have brought swift judgment against God's people, but they will eventually face judgment themselves. And the nations and the peoples, in verse 6, will take up their taunt against the arrogant, against uh, the nation of Babylon, and they'll pronounce some indictments. They'll pronounce five different woes. Now, in Scripture, a woe is simply a complaint. It's uh, often pronounced against cities, against peoples, nations, uh, even against certain types uh, of groups. Uh, Jesus pronounced woes over cities who rejected the prophets and who would not heed God's words. Uh, he declared at least seven woes to the Pharisees because their righteousness was just merely outward, and it was just for appearances. It wasn't inward. It wasn't, it wasn't ultimately genuine. Uh, you could say that there's some sort of account being kept to record the sin being committed by mankind against God. And this is merely God reading the charges to Habakkuk about Babylon. So there's five. Let's look at verses six through eight and see the first one. It says, Woe to him who keeps up what's not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. But uh, because you plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. Notice with me that the first of the five woes is greed. Go ahead and jot that down, greed. Notice the words here, verses 6 through 8, heap up, load, spoil, and plunder. 
You see, Babylon was not overpowering nations and just using their new resources efficiently. Uh, no, in their greed, they would plunder, they would pile up what they took. They had way in excess of what they needed. Now, often when we think about greed, you and I see the news and we think about CEOs and corporate greed. We kind of get angry at all. Oh, can't believe the corporate greed out there and how resources are wasted. Right? Oh, that CEO is making that much money and none of the money's going to the actual nonprofit. It's all going to the home office. Or, or maybe we, we think of greed, we think of rich people eating food in lavish restaurants and then at the end of the night they're scraping all the food in the dumpster. Right? That's just greedy. That's just over, over, um, you know, over consumption. Or maybe you think of a mansion with a 10-stall garage, each filled with a sports car, and there's this walk-in closet with a bunch of uh, high-end shoes. And we kind of think that is, that's greed. Uh, but listen, you don't have to be extravagantly rich to be greedy. There are plenty of people who, in their greed, are dishonest on their taxes, uh, who steal company time by falsifying their their breaks, their lunch, and their, their break times. Who go to the grocery store and they forget that there's something in the cart and they get to the car and it wasn't rung up and they just go, well, I'm just going to keep that. That's, that's greed. All of these things are greed. And greed is when we heap up what's not our own in excess to take for ourselves. It's when we obtain something that we don't need or we get from dishonest means. And, and that was an apt <clears throat> picture of Babylon. But notice in verse 8 that God is declaring the same fate upon them. He says, hey, you've greedily plundered other nations, and they're going to do this to you. It's going to happen back to you. You're going to be plundered. Now, look at our second woe in verses 9 through 11. This one's arrogance. And look for the arrogance in this um, section. He says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. It's almost like a picture of the parable Jesus told of the, the rich man who was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm wealthy. I'm just going to build a bunch more, a bunch of you know more houses and barns. You're going to forfeit your life." See, the analogy is drawn here of a house or a nest being built up in a lofty place, in a high place, to be out of harm's reach. This is a picture of arrogance of being protected from people with high walls, and yet the walls themselves are going to pronounce judgment and not stay secure. I wonder how many of us in our arrogance think of the walls that we live behind. And we think these walls are protecting us. Maybe it's your financial security. Maybe it's, oh, my, my wife, my husband is faithful. And in your arrogance, you think that would never happen to us. Or maybe my neighborhood, we have a gate in our neighborhood, so we're now upscale, and that's going to keep us from a harm. I don't know what it might be, but see, when these sources of security fall apart, our faith can become destroyed because we're arrogant, and we're walking in pride, not walking by faith. The very walls of Babylon, he says, will one day speak out to the king in a way that pronounces judgment against him. It's almost as if a hand would be writing the judgment against him on the wall. Well, look at the third woe. Uh, the third woe in verses 12 through 14 is violence. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, stay with me. Here God is specifically condemning their violence. 
They were building civilizations on bloodshed and on slave labor. That's how they would um, operate. That's how they built their um, cities. And yet God says, you're wearing yourself for nothing. All your hard work is going to be futile in the end. Why? Because as verse 14 states, it's not your glory that's going to be filled, the whole, the whole earth that will be filled with, but it'll be with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You want your name to be known, he says, but it's the glory of the Lord that's going to be known. You want to build a city to make a name for yourself, but in the end, it's going to be my glory that will be known in all the earth. This verse, verse 14, is echoed in Isaiah 11, 9. And as Pastor Micah said earlier, this is such a great picture of how we should be leading as Christians. We call it global missions, but we should have this endeavor and this passion in our heart to be goers or senders. Because if you're not going sending, you're disobedient. Right, you're one of the three. You're either going, you're sending, or you're disobedient. And it's our desire that we see the glory of God in every nation, that all of the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But notice that it's violence that he's pronouncing woe against. But there's two more. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. So the fourth idea here is drunkenness and dishonor. Notice that there's a woe to the drunk. He says in verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. There's a desire to drink. He says, here's a cup for you. It's going to be a cup of shame. But there's also a woe to the one who makes others drink. And when he does that, he brings dishonor upon himself and to them. These people want to indulge in drunkenness to seek glory. They want to be free from pain, but they're actually prolonging their pain because they're not really dealing with it. And they want to relax from their worries, but all they're doing is now adding shame to the list of their problems. Listen, the scriptures unequivocally condemn drunkenness. And since we're on this subject, if you call yourself a Christ follower, but you're getting drunk or you're drinking to be buzzed, you're in sin, you need to repent. That's, that's the beginning of drunkenness. I would even add to that. If you're a follower of Christ and you've got to have a beer or wine every day just to take the edge off, every afternoon, every evening, you're, you're leaning towards a major problem and you need to watch it. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 5.18 calls drunkenness dissipation. It's a waste of resources that should be given to the Lord. It's a waste. Babylon would be marked by drunkenness but also dishonor. He says, notice in verse 17, that the violence done to Lebanon is going to come to you. And the destruction of the beasts that terrify them will come to you through the blood of man of violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. There's another enemy coming, and they're going to revisit upon you what you have done to others. So Babylon was actually marked by the dishonor of drunkenness often. In fact, it was during a drunken feast that they were toppled. Their entire empire was toppled. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, look at our fifth woe, though, number five, idolatry. Read it earlier, but he asks, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. It's like a reminder. There's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple, but all the earth keeps silence before him. Remember last week we talked about how the Babylonians worshipped anything and everything. 
Um, years before Nebuchadnezzar was king, there was actually a king over Babylon who was being pursued into the Mesopotamian marshes. And he had all of the statues of Babylon, these huge statues, carried with the army to protect them in the swamp. They were looking to their man-made idols to guard over and watch over them. Uh, they looked to their idols to save them. But notice what God's assessment is in verse 20. If you're taking note, he says, listen, you're talking to a piece of wood. It's speechless. There's no breath in it at all. Like, the folly of idolatry is that you believe you're giving worth to something worthwhile, but it's actually worthless. Now, today, we scoff at the stupidity of carving a piece of wood. I would venture to say no one here today has a piece of wood or a stone at your house that you've carved and fashioned and you make sacrifices to every day. I venture to say, and if you do, I'd love to chat with you afterwards, but I venture to say none of us are actively carving idols and then bowing down and worshiping them. But how many men will click or tap on a screen to look at a woman's body that's been crafted out of silicone? And how many people will bow down to worship a boat fashioned out of fiberglass? How many women will worship silk and cotton fabric that's been created by a fashion designer? You see, we may not call it worship, we may not call them idols, but what does God say? You and I were made to desire glory, to give things glory. That's why we clap and we applaud something that we feel is deserving of uh, glory. That's why we lift our hands when our team wins. It's why we click on the love icons when we see pictures we connect with, or we share videos, sometimes to the chagrin of our friends. We share videos and we tag them in it because those videos are meaningful to us. We want to take something that's deserving of glory and then give it more worth and share it with others and make it known for what it is. And see, God is in his holy temple, so the appropriate response is that all the earth should keep silent before him. Why? Because he deserves alone all the glory, all the praise, all the recognition, all the honor, all the attention, all the worship. Why? Because from him comes all life, all satisfaction, all meaning, all purpose, all salvation. You see, God's not arrogant or malevolent for receiving worship. And he knows that if we seek to place our hope or our satisfaction, or our joy, or our trust in anything in creation, that it will ultimately crush us, it'll disappoint us, it'll destroy us. That's not narcissistic or egotistic. That's the most loving and gracious thing that he can do. To spare us torment and trial by pointing us to what will ultimately be for our best good. You see, we give him the glory that's due his name, and then some of us are overdue. We give him the glory that's due his name, and here Babylon may boast, but as always is the case, God gets the final word. We see Habakkuk next week, as we begin chapter 3, changing his tune. In fact, he picks up the tune. If you guys want to read ahead, I encourage you to do this. Read Habakkuk 3, where we actually get to see him begin a worship song. And it's one of the most beautiful songs in all of the scriptures. And he answers his own question, is God there, with a resounding, yes, God is absolutely there. Now, today, uh, we're going to take communion in just a moment, but I want to apply this passage of Scripture. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot these down. Apply this section of Scripture. Number one, you are either living by pride or you're living by faith. Charles Spurgeon said, 
if there's a sin that's universal, it is this. Where is it not to be found? Hunt among the highest and loftiest in the world, and you shall find it there. And then go and search amongst the poorest and the most miserable, and you shall find it there. There may be as much pride inside a beggar's rags as in a prince's robe, and a harlot may be as proud as a model of chastity. Pride is a strange creature. It never objects to its lodgings. It will live comfortably enough in a palace, and it will live equally at its ease in a public. Is there any man in whose heart pride does not lurk? Just think about it. The connection between pride and guilt is one we shouldn't miss here, especially in comparison with the righteous who lives by faith. It's as if God is saying in 2-4, condemned people live by their pride, but justified people live by faith. See, pride is believing in yourself, placing your faith in yourself, and yet the just will live by faith. This morning, you're either banking your own goodness and merit for salvation, or you're beating your chest. You're not even looking up to heaven. You're saying, have mercy on me, O God. I'm a sinner. Lord, thank you for your grace. I trust you alone. See, today, if you're walking in pride, there's a word for you. Repent. Turn from your pride. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James said it this way in James 4, 10. In the broader section, he said, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Peter echoed that. But in Peter's epistle, it's be humbled before the Lord. He will lift you up. Some of us need to hear that today. You're not trusting your life to the Lord. You've been trusting your own good works. You need to repent. You need to trust Christ. Maybe for the first time. You're either living by pride or by faith. Secondly, and I want to say this because I love you, but you will reap what you sow. you got to imagine preparing a sermon like this on the wrath and judgment of God has incurred this week some heavy heart and, and burden. As I consider the reality that I have to preach this and to tell us that we will reap what we sow. It's either going to be glory or it's going to be shame. But see, eventually King Nebuchadnezzar would defeat Israel. And at the height of his ascension, in his pride, he was brought low by the Lord. Literally low, like a beast of the field. But in the end, King Nebuchadnezzar was kind of restored to his health. And he ends up giving God glory. And years later, Daniel would record what had happened to King Nebuchadnezzar to share with his son, Belshazzar, who was following in the same steps of his father, Nebuchadnezzar, in his pride. And here's what Daniel said to him on the screen, Daniel 5, 18-22. Daniel said this, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He goes on to say, he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it 
whom he will. Many people believe he had this like absolute mental, you know, overcome uh, mental breakdown and was just psychologically crushed. But notice verse 22. You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Of course, if you know the history, Belshazzar won't listen, and soon he faces judgment. As he and the entire city were partying and reveling, the Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great, had taken the main water supply into the city, the main river. And remember, Babylon had this huge gate around it, or uh, these walls that you could ride chariots across. Uh, the size of Chicago, huge city, no way in. But there was one river that went through, and the gates that allowed the river were very low. Well, Cyrus diverts the river upstream, and then the water level goes down, and he and his army sneak in uh, as everyone's partying and enjoying their drunkenness, right into the main artery of the city, and eventually they overtake the Babylonian Empire. And this surprise attack was so successful that history records that people were still partying in the center of the city while the outside walls had all completely been breached and taken over by the Persian armies. See, we reap what we sow. Sooner or later, if you're walking in unrepentance, the wrath of God will be visited upon your lawlessness. You can't ignore it. You can just try to explain it away theologically. You can question its fairness. That will not divert it. A.W. Tozer powerfully said the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciousness of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day near and the command to repent goes unheeded. Listen, the Bible says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow today. You must repent. You must turn from your sin and receive Christ as your Savior. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life. Well, finally, number three, Jesus took our place to bear the wrath that we deserve. This is the best news. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. See, Jesus is the just one, and he took the place of the unjust in order to bring us to God. He bore the wrath that you and I deserve, and he took our place. As the hymn sings, On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk the world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race and thus becomes our hiding place. I want you to follow me for a minute. The woes that were declared upon Babylon included five things, arrogance, greed, violence, drunkenness, and idolatry. These were all sins that were sadly found in Israel, and they're found in all of mankind, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But listen, the indictment pronounced against sin was ultimately pronounced against Jesus. Just think of the pronouncements that are made. Blasphemer, idolater, thief, liar, adulterer, sexually immoral, murderer. You addict, you abuser, you molester, you rapist. You're proud, you're arrogant, you deceiver, you wicked. All of these were declared upon Jesus. He was declared sinner, but because of his sacrifice, you and I are declared saint. Jesus was declared reprobate, but you and I are declared righteous. Isn't that glorious good news? Because of his sacrifice, the just shall live by faith. 
we place all of our hope in the finished work of Christ. As we close, I'm going to invite the worship team forward. We're going to stay seated during this song, and we're going to distribute the elements while we sing. The team's going to come forward. In 1999, the golfer Payne Stewart, he uh, took off on a twin-inch Learjet out of Orlando Airport at 9.19 a.m. He was headed for Dallas Airport with he and five companions on board. And around the time that the two pilots were supposed to turn west towards Dallas, the air traffic controllers lost connection with them. And they continued a northwesterly track. And the small plane began to climb and eventually was as high as 50,000 feet in the air. And um, because of that, the military scrambled two Air Force jets to investigate what happened. Some of you know this story. He was a very famous golfer. When they observed the two Air Force jets approach, they saw the plane, and what they saw at the cockpit window was horrifying. What they saw were the windows completely fogged up, suggesting that the cabin had been depressurized and was chilled with the stratospheric air. In fact, the plane was on autopilot, and all five passengers were unconscious from the lack of oxygen. One of the air pilots, Air Force pilots, said it's a very hopeless feeling to pull alongside another aircraft and realize that people inside are unconscious or incapacitated. There's nothing that I can do physically for my aircraft, even though I'm 50 to 100 feet away to help them. Well, within hours, one of the engines failed, and the plane descended through the clouds. They lost sight of it, and they cleared the clouds, and then it crashed into a hayfield in South Dakota, and all the passengers have been killed. I can't, pick, I can't help but picture humanity on a runaway airplane, on a collision course of eternity, just minutes to spare. And yet Jesus didn't just feel pity for mankind, but he himself became our substitute. He died in our place that we might be redeemed. Because of Jesus, all of eternity will either be at rest or will be facing his wrath. And my prayer is today that we would know the love that has been laid down for us, the life that was laid down, and we'd be justified and we'd rest in this finished work on our behalf. In a moment, our ushers are gonna come forward. We're gonna distribute the elements, and there's two cups. Take, take both of them. There's the bread underneath and the juice on top. Just hold on to those. We'll sing, and then we'll take the communion together. Father, we thank you for the finished work of Christ. We thank you that we're justified by faith. And even with a heavy message of the wrath and the judgment of God, we can rest today in your finished work on our behalf. So we love you, we worship you, and Lord, as we sing, would you remind us of your goodness to us through the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.